Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for October 2014 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. Our speakers this month were astrophysicist Chris Lintott and Grant Miller, who spoke to us about exoplanets and their potential to support alien life. We hope you enjoy. Um, thank you for coming anywhere in Oxford. Out as difficult as getting to Proxima Centauri, so it's really appreciated. You made the effort. Uh, maybe we can get the, the council to sort out interstellar travel next, and uh, I'm sure we'll solve all of those problems. Um, but it's a delight to be here, and it's particularly a delight to be talking about this topic. It's going to have nothing to do with or almost nothing to do with citizen science. You can ask us about that later on. Um, but I think it's a really exciting one, and as with all scientific topics, we can start establishing a, a baseline for the measurement. So we'd just like to start by taking a quick vote. So if you think that aliens exist somewhere in the universe, please raise your hand. It's a majority vote, I think. Um, if you think they don't, please raise your hand. I'm going to vote, just to make this interesting. <laughs> All right, well, this is good. On a technicality, this might be easy. Yeah, okay. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, so, okay, so it's interesting that there's a strong opinion because I'd argue that until very recently, that opinion was precisely that. It was very difficult to bring any facts to bear uh, on this particular question, the question of whether there are aliens out there uh, and where they would be. In fact, it's a question that people have been asking for at least hundreds of years, uh, as we'll hear in a bit, uh, but also thousands of years. And it's only in the last 10 years or so that it's question that we've begun to actually think seriously and scientifically uh, about how to answer this question without doing the slightly pathetic thing of waiting to be contacted. Um, now, I, I'm a fan of that. You know, I do think we should be putting money into SETI, into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, I'm an even bigger fan of a project run by some friends of mine called WETI, which is the Wait for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, that works on the basis of the fact that aliens are probably more advanced than ourselves and we can just wait for them to contact us. And if you have an Android phone, you can download the Wetty app, which waits several million times a second uh, and will alert you if aliens are discovered. I encourage you all to do this. But, but that aside, I think what we're really trying to do is think about the conditions that would be necessary for alien life. Until we do that, we can't make much progress scientifically. Um, and the way to do that is to take the conditions we see on Earth that are um, suitable for life, the minimal set of things that are needed uh, for, for life to exist, and look at the conditions out there in the rest of the universe. Um, and you can boil those conditions down to... to well, don't boil them. That's not a good uh, moment. But you can cut those conditions down to just a few criteria. Uh, there is always the caveat in this discussion that with enough imagination, we can imagine anything. Um, and you know, I have no evidence that there are not giant jellyfish swimming amongst the clouds of Jupiter. Um, they may well be there. There may be forms of life uh, which we which would appear so alien we would have recognized them. Uh, but for the most part, we have to leave that speculation aside and start with trying to find life that's a bit like us. And that basically means life that needs water. And there are good reasons. So all life on Earth is dependent on the existence uh, of water. And there are good 
practical reasons why that would be so. Uh, It's to think about because such a fundamental component of our existence. Um, But water is a very strange molecule. It has unusual properties, in particular because of, of the electronic structure of water. It's very good at forming weak bonds with things, which makes it an excellent solvent. In fact, it's the best solvent we know of. And so if you want complex chemistry to involve, if you want a, wide, a large number of to be able to interact or to move around or to form the kind of patterns of chemistry that might end up repeating and on which evolution can act and, and can produce more and more complex forms, then really you need liquid water. And so my suggestion is that we combine our search for alien life to life that needs water. And you can go a bit further as well. Uh, You could add in the fact that we're going to probably talk about carbon-based life. Um, This is a constraint, the one for water, I think. Uh, Life on Earth is based on carbon chemistry, as you know, to the extent that we call it organic chemistry when it uses carbon. and the reason for that is that carbon can form four separate bonds at once. And so you can get more complex chemistry. It's not a unique feature. Silicon can do that as well. And sci-fi has happily enjoyed for decades making silicon-based life form. But my guess is that carbon is the, the favorite choice. So we're really looking for places where there's liquid water uh, and where there's uh, the potential for complex chemistry. And for hundreds of years, the only testing ground we had for those ideas was in our solar system in this system of planets and rubble that happens to exist around the sun. And so uh, as people look down at the solar system, it's tempting to look for the most Earth-like planets. And if you're thinking about liquid water, and you're thinking about liquid water on the surface of a big rocky body like the Earth, our solar system is actually an intriguing place. Mercury, closest planet to the sun, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, although we'll come back to them, are too cold. Um, but you have, And Earth is, is fine. In fact, it lives in, in what tends to be called the Goldilocks zone, the region that's not too hot, not too cold, but just right. Um, sadly, astronomers have started calling this the habitable zone, but Goldilocks zone is much better, so I'm still trying to fight for that one. Um, but Mar- Mars, on one hand, and Venus, on the other, are edge cases. They, they could be able to support liquid water. Take Venus. Venus these days is a very unpleasant place. Um, It has a thick atmosphere, which is acidic. Um, The pressure on the surface is immense, and the temperatures are several hundred degrees. Uh, And so it's absolutely not uh, a viable candidate now uh, for hosting life. But if you go back 50, 60 years, people thought that under the clouds of Venus, before the space age, before we could look underneath Venus's clouds, and there were suggestions that it would have oceans, it would be a sort of swampy and tropical pad- paradise, and had it a different kind of it would still be a plausible place to put life. Um, there are people who work in our department just up the road who are trying to understand why Venus had the runaway unpleasant climate. So Venus has ruled itself out because of uh, some atmospheric physics that we find hard to understand. But Mars is right on the edge. You know, a hundred years ago, it was commonplace that Mars would have life. There was a prize, I think it was called the Prix Goncourt, which was offered in the early years of the 20th century. Um, A large sum of to the first person, offered by the Paris Academy of Sciences, to the first person who could establish contact with an alien race. 
the prize is still available, by the way. Uh, inflation uh, it sort of wiped it out in the 30s, so it's, I think it's worth not very much these days. But the prize is still there. Um, I think of the glory. But the prize is still there. Uh, but it ex- explicitly forbids you can't win it by contacting aliens from Mars because it's too easy. <laughs> so, you know, people thought that Mars was there. Take um, Lembe Opik from the Liberal Democrat MP. Sometimes at this point in the talk, people think I'm about to say he's an alien. And I, have, I have no evidence of that. His grandfather was... Well, no... <laughs> We'll throw you out of the conspiracy if you give away the secrets, Grant. We agreed we weren't going to say that. No, no, no. Uh, Ernst Opit was a famous astronomer, and he made this really plausible argument. You see, Mars has dark patches on its surface, um, which you see through a small telescope, and they get covered by dust. Mars has these immense spots that obscure the whole surface of the planet, and the dark areas get covered by dust, and then they reappear in the same place after the dust storm. And so Ernst argued, convincingly, I think, that these must be plants that we're seeing because they grow up through the dust. It's why they appear on the same place. It's a perfectly plausible hypothesis, which is complete nonsense because these are, in fact, high areas where the dust blows away. But nonetheless, you know, it was a common place that Mars uh, was habitable and indeed habited. Uh, And in the last 10, 15, 20 years, we've discovered through uh, missions like the rovers, Spirit, Opportunity, and curiosity, all with terrible names. You can tell they're all named by American school children. It gives that sort of slightly uh, sixth-grade sense of uh, positiveness, which I detest. Uh, but but, but th- between them, those rovers have established that Mars was once a wet world, that a, three or four billion years ago there were oceans on Mars, that uh, those oceans were probably long-lived, and while in some places they were acidic, more acidic than the sulfuric acid on a chemist's lab bench. In others, they were neutral. And so we have a perfect uh, position for life, and yet we have no evidence for there ever having been life on Mars. We haven't explored the whole planet. We haven't dug under the surface, and yet everything we know tells us that Mars is habitable, but not habited, or there's no evidence that it ever had life. And so the state of play before we go beyond the solar system is that there are places where life could exist. On Earth, it did. On Mars, it, took, it, it, it certainly didn't take over the planet and maintain itself. Um, and, and so things are a little a, a, ambiguous. And that's about as far as we can go with only one solar system to study. We can argue about moons around the outer planets, and we'll talk about them later. Uh, but that's about as far as we can go. And that was the state of the science uh, in the mid-90s. At which point, Grant entered the field, and you could tell us about it. Yes, as a nine-year-old coming straight into that field. Um, I'd like to just first of all say thanks for coming to join us in the pub for Oxford Sidebar. Thanks for having us, Port Mahon. This is great. I've never uh, done a scientific talk with a pint before. This is exciting. Uh, I'd also like to say that I uh, would like to back up that claim that discovering life on Mars wouldn't be worthy of this prize. That's what I'm going to say to you here is that if life was discovered elsewhere in our solar system, I wouldn't be that excited. Um, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> maybe a little bit excited. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so there's an idea that our solar system's so close and shares so many um, uh, bodies between each other that it could be a single genesis of life. Maybe if we found life on Mars, it could be actually the same life as on Earth. I'm really excited by the potential of especially intelligent life in the rest of our galaxy, in the rest of our universe. 
And this isn't an idea that's only come around in the last 20 years. Um, it's actually been around for thousands of years, uh, at least with the ancient Greeks in 6-700 BC. Uh, there were philosophers talking about the ideas of other worlds just like the earth. And I'd like you to, to take a few years on after that to one of my personal heroes, uh, who is an Italian philosopher and astronomer by the name of Giordano Bruno. And um, I don't know how many people have heard of him, but he, uh, after this I'll hopefully convince you that he is one of the greatest guys who's ever lived. Uh, what very personal hero of mine. He... Um, First of all, just a really interesting guy. He was a philosopher, a thinker, and he didn't stay in one place. He liked to travel. He was a traveling scientist, a traveling philosopher. He'd go around Europe. He even came to Oxford to lecture uh, for a while, but actually failed to get a permanent position and went back to Italy. <laughs> um, during his travels, he theorized on a lot of things, but one of the things he was obsessed with was the idea of the plurality of worlds. This was the idea that the Earth wasn't the only place like this in our known universe. And this is before astronomers even understood what the stars in the night sky were and that they were similar to our sun. He believed that there were other worlds like ours out there amongst these stars with other intelligent life on them. Um, he also had many other controversial kind of forward-thinking views, um, which the uh, Catholic Church at the time didn't view so kindly um, he ended up having his tongue removed due to the nastiness of his teachings and his words and was burnt at the stake in 1600 for his beliefs. Uh, partly this belief that there were planets uh, around other stars. Now, I stand here in front of you talking about planets around other stars as someone who did their entire PhD in it. And I can freely say that. And I think it's marvelous that he had the bravery to say that in a time where he could be burned at the stake for it. I certainly would have gone into a different field, I think, if, if that was still a possibility. <laughs> call, me, um, uh, call me a coward, but yes, he was a, a, a remarkable man. Now, this was, this was um, 400 years ago. Uh, I'm going to fast forward you again on our little brief history of exoplanets here up till, um, well, not even an exoplanet. I like that in the, the mid-1700s, um, there was quite a significant event for uh, planetary science. The first ever planet discovered by man uh, was discovered by William Her Herschel. It was Uranus. Um, and the other planets you can all see with the naked eye. They'd been known about probably by animals before us that could see the night sky at night. You know, you can see Jupiter, you can see Venus, you can see Mars. Mercury and Saturn, but Uranus was the first to be discovered by man. So that was quite a significant point. But this was still 200 uh, years on from Giordano Bruno. And then there's a gap, a huge gap, till the mid-1900s, um, when the idea of worlds around other stars really came back in force, and the idea of intelligent life elsewhere in our universe started to come back in force. And one of the people who drove this was a great man by the name of Otto Struve. Now, Otto Struve is not that massive a name in science, even though I found out earlier today he may well be the second most published astronomer in the history of the field. He published 900 articles and books during his career. He was one of these really once-in-a-generation energetic scientists who thought 
and published and thought and published about everything he could digest. And one of the things he was really into was the idea of the plural, plurality of worlds. I should stop saying plurality. It trips me up every time. Have you got synonyms? Give me a synonym. Okay. Um, the diversity of worlds? Oh, no. uh, so, work on that one. The, he thought there was loads of planets. Um, so, yeah, he, he was really obsessed with this idea that uh, there would be other worlds like Earth out there. You might have heard this before a few hundred years earlier, but he's trying to bring it back. And he also worked on uh, binary star systems and variable stars. And during his work, he started to think, well, what if instead of these binary stars that we see eclipsing each other, like the sun and the moon, what if you had a star and a planet that eclipsed each other like that? And the planet was big enough that you would see the dip in the light, just like when the moon passes in front of the sun during a solar eclipse. And he also observed these binary stars. Uh, he could see the movement of these stars in, in their light, in the Doppler shift of their light as they wobbled. And he thought, well, what if a planet was around this star? Instead of another star, you had a planet and a star system, and you could observe the wobble of the star to measure if there was a planet around there, even though you can't ever see the planet because they're so small and, and not bright compared to the star, you could see their effect on the light of the host star. And he wrote this up in a lovely article that I've read many, many times, put it into astronomy, uh, uh, sorry, Sky and Telescope magazine, and it was really not read by anyone. Uh, just It went unnoticed amongst all of his other publications. Maybe he public, uh, published too much. Yeah, yeah, he's published too much. So, fast forward again to 1992. We finally did it. Almost 400 years on for Giordano Bruno getting burnt at the stake. The first planet around another star was proven to exist. But it was a weird one. It wasn't found around a sun-like star. It was found around the dead core of a star um, known as a pulsar. Pulsars have two beams of radiation that come out of their poles, and they're spinning very fast. Uh, and you can actually see the pulses sweep over you like a lighthouse beam. And it, they have an extremely regular timing between the pulses. Now, a couple of guys called Woolscan and Frail thought, well, why don't we measure the timing of these pulses and see if there's actually a variation in it? Well, look at a lot of pulsars. Maybe some will have a variation. Maybe there's something in orbit around these pulsars that would make them vary. Because the gravitational pull would pull the pulsar around, and you'd, you wouldn't see this regular timing anymore. You would see a variation in it. And they witnessed that, and they could measure the mass of the objects causing that variation, and found it to be about four times as massive as the Earth. The first ever planet discovered around another star in our night sky. Not around one that you can see with your naked eye, but the dead core of a star was amazing and a strange place, but that was at 1992, the field that I went on to work in began. And then only three years later, the first planet around a sun-like star. And this was two lovely gentlemen, Swiss-French uh, Swiss gentlemen, uh, Didier Kello and Michel Mayor. Um, they decided, right, what if we look for something a bit weird? Everyone has said to us that we can't observe the wobble of a star due to a planet. We can't observe the dip in its light because the planets that are close enough to do that regularly are small, like Mercury, Earth, and Mars. The planets in the, that are close into the stars are small. You wouldn't see the effect. And the planets that are big are further out, the gas giants, the Jupiter's Mars, Uranus, um, Jupiter, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. 
had to do it. You had to do it. It's the alcohol. <laughs> Never. Uh, so, they exist further out in the solar system. All models show that large planets that cause big variations in the star's light are far out, and the little ones that you wouldn't see the variations are close in. And because the big ones that cause it are far out, you're never going to see them. They take tens of years to go around stars. You'd have to be observing for years and years and years before you saw anything. And that's what everyone said, and that's why no one was looking. And these two crazy um, French-Swiss guys thought, well, it's only going to take a few days. Why don't we just look at some stars and roll that possibility out? And they weren't looking for long when they caught their first planet. They saw the wobble of a star going back and forth. It's light coming back and forth to us due to a planet. Once every four days, they found a, star as, a planet as massive as Jupiter, but it was going round its star once every four days, completely breaking all the models. They're now known as hot Jupiters. These massive, massive Jupiter-sized planets really close in to the host star, much closer than Mercury is in our solar system. Every theory we built suggested they could not exist. But they looked for them, they were. And this was really the explosion in the exoplanetary field. From 1995 onwards, it went two planets the next year, four the next year, eight, and so on. When I started my degree in astrophysics, there were 12 known exoplanets. When I finished, there were 100. Now we're getting up to thousands. And it's not just the velocity method that's getting used. Also, do you remember what Otto Struve said? He said, well, what if you look at a star and a planet passes in front of it? If it's big enough, it'll block some of the light and you'll be able to notice that. And it's true. In 2000, a guy called Dave Charbonneau got a small telescope out, put it in the car park at the Boulder uh, Astrophysics Department in Colorado, and observed around one of the known uh, stellar wobble planets, the transit of the first ever planet. And you could see that hot Jupiter transiting over the star, causing a 1% dip in its light that was easily measurable. Both of these discoveries could have been done 50 years earlier. It's hard to think of a, of a field in astrophysics or any science where we had the technology 50 years beforehand, but the only thing that restricted us was our belief in the previous models and our belief that these things couldn't exist. So it shows you quite a lot in, in, in the exoplanetary field that you have to sometimes just try and forget exactly what you know and what you believe to be true and have a look and see if there might be something else there. And that's kind of what you touched on with the, with the alien life thing. But you have to start on what you know. If we don't start on what we know, we're, we're stabbing in the dark a lot. So it's easy to look back in retrospect and me to laugh at these guys. But... Uh, yeah, there, there are many other types of solar system out there than we expected, and we're now finding thousands. And I'll let Chris tell you about some of those solar systems. Thanks. So many of those discoveries that Grant was talking about, the thousands of planets, came from one spacecraft. It was a small telescope called Kepler that had the advantage of being in orbit around the Earth and thus avoiding all of the interference that our atmosphere normally gives us. Uh, and it's actually a good illustration of what Grant was just saying. Kepler was first proposed to NASA in the middle of the 1980s, and it was rejected for being a crazy idea. And it was proposed 17 times. And for the first 15, they were told that they were crazy and that they wouldn't find any planets, at which point the, dis the first discoveries happened. And then the 16th time, they were rejected for not being ambitious enough. Uh, but the team persevered, a guy called Bill Barucki in particular, uh, who was the principal investigator, uh, got their mission launched. And Kepler 
in some ways had the most boring job you can imagine. It stared for three years at one patch of sky, a patch of sky about the size of four full moons, uh, on the border of the constellation of Cygnus and Lyra. It's a little patch of the sky we see in the summer. Uh, and there are it could be a few million stars in that patch, and the scientists chose 150,000 of them. And every 29 minutes or so, Kepler reported the brightness of each of those stars. The strange thing, you might ask, why 150,000 when they could have had a couple of millions? Strangely, it was bandwidth limited. So the limit on how many stars they could monitor was how much information they could get down to Earth. Uh, I like to think of that when I'm trying to get signal on my mobile phone. Uh, yeah, it's not just a, a problem that affects me. It's all of astronomy. Um, so, so 150,000 stars, and every 29 minutes with unprecedented um, capability of measurement. So the tiny variations in light can be picked out uh, from amongst uh, the Kepler data. It's actually causing a problem because it turns out we don't understand stars well enough because the stars themselves change brightness. They pulse, they fluctuate, they have star spots just as the sun has sunspots. And we have to account for all of that to pick out these repeated patterns of winks that betray the presence of a planet. But you can do it. And Kepler has started producing this avalanche of planet discoveries. In fact, the amount of Kepler data and the number of planets are so rich um, that we adopted Kepler as, as part of our Zooniverse citizen science program. So uh, if you haven't been to zooniverse.org, this is the commercial break, roughly. Uh, if you haven't been to zooniverse.org on the web, you will find 30 or so projects that allow you to make a contribution to science. So you can um, look at plankton images. You can classify galaxies by shape. You can... Uh, as of a few weeks ago, count penguins, uh, which will really help our friends out in zoology. Um, or you can go to a project called Planet Hunters and view the data from the Kepler mission. And the task that we set people with Planet Hunters is to look at the data from Kepler in the form of a graph. This breaks all rules of science communication because you're not supposed to show people graphs. Um, and look to see if you could see a dip. And at first glance, I admit, this sounds crazy. Not just because people don't want to look at graphs for a hobby. Maybe you guys do, but most people don't. Um, but also because surely that task of picking out a dip is one that can be automated. You can write an automated routine to pick out those dips in brightness. And indeed, the Kepler team did, right? You can look for repeated winks by computer. But... As Grant said, we, we already know that we have a very poor track record of predicting what planets exist. And so we want to make sure that there's no planet left behind, if you like. We want to make sure we capture them all. And so Planet Hunters is an attempt to do the craziest thing. Like, instead of trying to improve on the machine learning, we can do that too, let's just look and see if there's anything obvious that we're missing. And one of the people who looked is a guy called Roy Jenkins. And Roy is a 73-year-old retired policeman from Gateshead. And, you know, spent some of his spare time looking for planets. And he noticed this dip. And he marked it. And we noticed that there was this repeated pattern of dips. And, in fact, Roy had discovered a Neptune-sized planet in the Goldilocks zone of its parent star, a planet which is now <laughs> slightly ungloriously known as Planet Hunters 1b. Uh, we're trying to fix the naming of these things, but that's another story. Um, uh, uh, the reason I mention Roy is he, he was interviewed uh, the BBC went to see him and, and, and asked him on camera, and I thought this could be great, we're going to get this publicity and lots more people are going to come and look. And they said, why did you decide to look for planets? 
And he looked straight down the lens and he said, well, there's nothing good on telly. <laughs> and there's only so much gardening you could do. Which must be the most British response to a discovery of all time. But, but so anyway, so, so Roy found his planet, and, and you note that it's a Neptune-sized planet in the habitable zone. It wouldn't fit in in our solar system. We had this very ordered life with Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars close to their parent star, and Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, the big planets further out. We found weirder things. There's a planet out there called Planet Hunters 2b, Sorry about the names. Um, which has four stars in its sky. You have to imagine two stars going around each other every few days, another pair of stars going around each other every few days, the whole lot orbiting its common center of mass uh, every few years, and a planet, another Neptune-sized one, going around two of the stars. It's what's called a circumbinary in a four-star system. And the amazing thing about this planet is it shouldn't exist. Its orbit is stable now, but if you put a disk around those stars, and we know that planets form for protoplanetary disks, just the leftover material from star formation, then the disk is disrupted by the other stars. So this planet is telling us that we don't understand how planets form. And that's been our experience with Kepler from the beginning. We found a remarkable diversity of planets. We found planets around double stars. We found Jupiters very close to their parent stars. We found... Uh, planets in the same system that appear to orbit in the opposite direction. We've seen planets, one that goes at this angle and one which goes at this angle. We've seen all sorts of solar systems, stellar systems, exoplanet systems. Um, and we've realized that we haven't understood what seemed to be a nice organizing principle of the universe, that rocky planets live close to their parent star and gaseous planets leave further out, is left in tatters. And yet we still believe that big planets planets with a large atmosphere have to have formed a long way from their parent star. Um, um, those of you who know me will know it's unusual that I'm not drinking in a pub. Um, there's good reason to believe big form a long way out. Their primate Jupiter, for example, is primarily hydrogen. And when you look at these disks of material around young stars from which planets are going to form, the inner regions are too hot for there to be hydrogen. So the hydrogen will have boiled away. And so these planets that are mostly hydrogen must have formed a long way out. And in fact, they must have migrated inwards. Oh, and it turns out, by the way, that if you ask the people whose job it is to work this stuff out, once we discovered the hot Jupiters, they tell you... No, the theorists. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. The, the, the theorists suddenly said, oh, no, 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 our computer models predict that everything will migrate inwards. And they expected all along, even though we didn't tell any of you. Um, so, so you expect these planets to migrate inwards. Um, and you can find a way of getting them to stop if the inner bit of the disk has been hollowed. It, it sort of works. So you can then make the prediction, which is not good for the chances of life, that when you find one of these big Neptune or Jupiter-sized planets close to their parent star, that it's come in from the outer solar system. It's formed and then moved inwards. And if you look at the time scales, you would have formed a nice proto-Earth, and then Jupiter would have come marauding through. Uh, and so this is not good for those of us who like rocky planets in the habitable zone. However, we found still weirder systems. There's a simpler system called Kepler-20, or is it 22? It's 20. 20, which we know has all of them closer to its parent star than Mercury is to the Sun. And the order goes 
here, we have a Jupiter-sized planet and a Uranus-sized planet. Then a, sorry, a Jupiter-sized planet, then a Uranus-sized planet, then a Venus-sized planet, and then a Neptune-sized planet. So that's a gaseous planet formed in the outer solar system, a rocky one that formed in the inner bit, then a gaseous one that formed in the outer solar system, then a rocky one, and then a gaseous one. So you have to somehow, it's like some ridiculous cosmic logic puzzle. You have to find a way to move three planets from the outer solar system to in the inner solar system without disrupting the orbits of the two that were there in the beginning. If you remember the, the puzzle about the goat and the fox and trying to get a boat across, it's exactly like that, but in astrophysics. Um, and so the point is, I think, that solar systems are not regular. We've destroyed the classic metaphor for the orderly universe, which is the planets endlessly orbiting the stable sun. At least in their early phases, solar systems are chaotic places with planets moving about and migrating through the disk. And so then the question becomes, and this is why it's relevant to the idea of aliens, is we seem to have grasped for a second the idea that habitats for aliens, planets in all their diversity, are common in the Milky Way. And then we realize that our, we're beginning to realize, I think, that our solar system is odd in that this process didn't happen. For some reason, Jupiter and Saturn stayed where they were and left us alone. And the really frustrating thing is that trying to discover whether Jupiter-like planets, so not Jupiter-sized planets, but Jupiter-sized planets in Jupiter-like orbits, they're really difficult to detect. If you're going to wait for the blink, you have to wait 10 years for a single blink, and then you have to wait another 10 years for another one, and so on and so forth. So we haven't found any planets that far out yet. Uh, and the wobble method that Grant talked about, the signal is too weak because Jupiter is too far away. And so my guess is that our solar system is unusual. My guess is that Jupiter, which incidentally also does an excellent job protecting us from comets, um, is unusual and that therefore the nice habitable planets that we want if we're going to have a diversity of life in the solar system, sorry, in the galaxy, are actually pretty rare. So despite your belief in, in aliens, I'm beginning to think that places where aliens might exist might be vanishingly rare. And this is one example, one way of resolving uh, the paradox that we seem to be special in the galaxy, that we're the only known life. And you can look at other things as well. The moon may be unusual. People have argued that the moon keeps the Earth's axis stable. So the Earth's axis is tilted at about 24 degrees, which produces the seasons. Mars, without a moon, currently is about the same tilt, but we know has widely varied over billions and millions of years. So Mars has a very unstable climate on cosmic timescales. Dramatic, catastrophic climate change due to a wobbling axis. And you can argue that it's the moon that's kept us stable. And we have no idea whether these other planets that we're finding have moons. So there may be other reasons we're special. And my guess is that despite the apparent hope of having millions of planets out there, I think it works out as 17 billion Earth-like planets or something like that, my guess is that we're not yet at the point where we can safely say scientifically that there are homes for aliens out in the galaxy. Thanks, Chris, for that somewhat negative note. <laughs> I'm going to show you why he's completely wrong to be negative here. Uh, so, yeah, at the very end there, you touched on the numbers. It's a numbers game. Let's play the numbers game. So I'm going to take you back again. I'll take you back and take you forward. I'm going to take you back to 1961. 
back to West. Yeah, no, sorry. I'm taking you back to 1971. Here's Ken Rogers with First Edition. Um, 1961, a man called Frank Drake, another great believer in the plurality of worlds, uh, that there are loads of planets, and on those planets, on those loads of planets, there is life, a galaxy, and our universe. Um, had a meeting at the Frank Telescope in Virginia, where he, for the purposes of an argument, and not really scientifically, which now might be one of the most equations, uh, most famous equations in astronomy. It's called the Drake Equation, named after him. And it's an argument to say, right, let's try and figure out the potential number of um, intelligent civilizations currently around in our galaxy based on a bunch of factors. A bunch of... Um, factors which get harder to as you go through the equation. The first one is how many stars are there in our galaxy? The second one, how many of those stars have planets? It's a very simple equation to follow through. The third one, you can probably guess, how many of those planets are habitable? The fourth, how many of those habitable planets actually let life take hold? The next one, how many of those um, life forms actually get to the point where they become intelligent? And finally, well, no, actually, two left. Uh, how many of those intelligent life forms get to the point where they leak or send out readable signals? And finally, how long do those civilizations last for on average? Are we going to destroy ourselves after a couple hundred years of sending out radio signals. We're pretty damn close. We started sending out radio signals in the start of the 1900s and almost destroyed ourselves with the Cuban Missile Crisis 50 years later. That's not a great time for astronomy. You know, millions of years are too short a time for observational astronomy. 50 years isn't great. So there are these things to consider. Now, when I came up with this equation for this argument at the start of the SETI project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, he really just wanted to get people to think about how to work through the problem. Uh, statistically and, and, uh, and numerically, and none of the values were known. Here we are 50 years later. We know roughly the number of stars in our galaxy, somewhere between 200 and 400 million. That's really accurate. Ask an astronomer. 200 and 400 million. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, the second one, which fraction of those stars have planets? The Kepler statistics so far, those 150,000 stars we've looked at, and the number of candidates they've got for planets, is starting to suggest, along with all the other planet surveys, that there's at least one planet for every star. And that's only in you know, 20 years since we decided there was one other planet around one of the stars in our galaxy. I'm willing to bet there's probably more planets than stars in our galaxy. It's going that way. That's the way the trend's going. But there's at least, now we think, one planet for every star. 200 to 400 billion planets. Which fraction of them can harbor life? Now, the Kepler statistics are a bit depressing. The planets we started to find are a bit weird because um, we started to find these hot Jupiters. No chance of life around a hot Jupiter as we know it. We started to find um, really big planets everywhere. 
but they're easier to find. So once Kepler went on, started getting a bit uh, longer observations are always helpful. If you want to observe an Earth-like planet around a Sun-like star, you need uh, at least three data points they wanted, so that's three years. The Kepler project was running for just over three years when it broke. So, <laughs> but the data's in there, and they've started to find planets that are close to that like Earth. And um, the statistics are actually quite interesting. So, the Jupiter, hot Jupiter planets, have really dropped a fraction of planets we know about. They've dropped down to a tiny percentage. The ones that have skyrocketed are Neptune-sized. Seems that the majority of planets out there that we know of so far are Neptune-sized. But the Earth-sized planets are taking up 20% of that value. 20%. One in five planets around the 200 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy are Earth-sized. Now, that doesn't mean they're habitable. That just means they're the same size as Earth. So there's a chance they'll be nice and rocky and maybe uh, have the right pressure for liquid water on the surface. But then we need to get them the right distance from their star. But let's just remember those numbers. 200 to 400 billion stars. Uh, hundreds of billions of planets, so even you take that down to Earth size, you've still got billions of Earth sized planets. Even if you take then that a small fraction of that, you've got millions of planets that could be in the habitable zone around their star. That's a lot of chances to form life. It's it's just it's a numbers game. And then there's the kicker. There's the absolute kicker. We're one galaxy in a hundred billion galaxies in our universe. Bam. There's a multiplier right there. <laughs> Things, I, I don't know, things are starting to look good for me statistically. I like a little bit of a gamble. I, I bet on the football occasionally. Uh, if I, yeah, as a betting man, I would not bet against it with those numbers getting thrown in my face, those hundreds of billions. Um, and then the next scale up, right? We've defined habitability as Earth-sized, the right distance from its star. But there's other possibilities for habitability, I don't believe I nailed that sentence right there. That was a surprise. <laughs> so um, there's other possibilities. Uh, you can those hot Jupiters we were finding, not the hot, but the Jupiter is closer. If they have an Earth-sized moon orbiting them, it wouldn't be that crazy a mass ratio. We've got quite a big mass ratio as to the moon. Jupiter to an Earth size isn't that bad. So you could have um, the forest moon of Endor. Out there, you know, that's the one people always go to. So, uh, moons can be habitable too, in theory. Um, you can also have such outlandish things that people have proposed there are a lot of free floating planets out there. In the early formation of a planetary system, there's a lot of dynamical interactions that could lead to planets being thrown out of their systems. They're very hard to detect. There have been some um, possible detections of them so far using a technique called gravitational microlensing, which is a really good technique at measuring mass, but you can only ever view the planet once, which kind of sucks. Um, and then it's gone forever for the rest of eternity. You'll never be able to view it again unless you become extremely advanced. Um, but what if these three floating, floating planets um, have a lot of geothermal activity? What if they're already hot enough? What if they can sustain that with an atmosphere long enough uh, to, to let life take hold? There are a lot of opportunities out there for life to take hold. 
maybe they're too far away. Maybe there's only a million in our galaxy and some of them are all over here and all over the other side. Maybe there's one per each galaxy, but that's still a hundred million advanced civilizations in our universe. And I think that's an extremely conservative estimate. Uh, I'll let Chris close out with those numbers. Thanks. You actually missed one of your arguments as well, which is that even in our solar system, I said we'd come back to the outer planets. And one of the most remarkable things of the last 10 years has been the discovery that things we thought were boring, lots of the icy moons of the outer planets, have turned into these fascinating worlds. Um, Enceladus, a small and, and frankly lumpy uh, moon of Saturn, turns out to have jets of liquid water uh, slushing from itself. That's not even a word. Uh, jetting. No, that's bad too. Uh, coming from itself pole and shooting out in space. A, a discovery we made because we accidentally flew a spacecraft called Cassini through those jets. Um, and the team noticed that maybe something was going on and they should take some pictures. Um, so that means that the, the jets are fun, um, particularly because they're salty. Way, which means that that's water that's been in contact with rock, uh, but because they indicate there is an ocean within Enceladus. Two of Jupiter's moons have liquid uh, oceans uh, under the ice, and, and one of them, Europa, has also once been observed to uh, have jets as well. So there are missions being proposed that will go to Europa and try and determine uh, the depth of the surface. It may be that the most common habitats in the universe are not uh, Earth-like planets, but in fact the inside of these interior moons. While we've been talking, um, there has been an announcement uh, from a group of scientists that they think they've discovered by studying surface features on a, a moon of Saturn called uh, Mimas. Um, um, that too seems to have a liquid ocean, which no one believed 45 minutes ago. Uh, it's now a paper in Science, which was uh, under embargo, so it must be true. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, it, Mimas was the only notable thing about Mimas previously is it looks exactly like the Death Star from Star Trek, but now it's a, a Star Wars. I know, I know. Anyway, my, I'm so excited by Mimas that I forget my sci fi mixed up. Anyway, so, so icy moons are also important, but. You can make the statistical argument all you like, Grant, and you can argue that there should be hundreds of millions of civilizations out there. But there's the, the slightly unavoidable and depressing fact that they're not here. And so we still need to explain if your galaxy is populated with aliens, we have to explain why they're not sitting in Oxford astrophysics answering all of my questions. And you have a few options. And I want to close by going through those options. So one option uh, is sort of the pessimist's view, which is that all advanced civilizations destroy themselves after a very short period of time, astronomically speaking. Um, and so you get these little blinks of light in the cosmos, these little moments of knowledge that never get to talk to each other. It's all gone a bit quiet in here. So that's, but it's scientifically, you know, that's the evidence supports that. Another option, we, which I like to call blame the biologists, is that we don't really understand how life gets started. And so it may be that that is an incredibly rare process. So there's a number that Grant skipped over, which is the fraction of planets that have life, that we have very, very poor constraints on. And so it may be that life only got started once in the Milky Way, and then it's no surprise that we're sitting here. Um, the argument against that is that it, life appeared very early in Earth's history, suggesting it might be a likely process. But if you want to make that argument, you have to deal with the fact that intelligent life only appeared very late 
and is therefore very unlikely. So you can also argue there's a sort of stupid life hypothesis that everything else is bacteria uh, and we are the anomaly. But so you either have civilizations destroying themselves, life being incredibly rare, or you have to argue that there's something special about our place. And what I like about this debate is we've gone from a very broad question, do aliens exist, to trying to distinguish between three possibilities which are all, at least in principle, testable. So thank you for your attention. I know we've been keeping you from the bar, but we, we'd be very happy to hear your thoughts uh, and uh, answer any questions. Thank you very much. Questions, thoughts, aliens? Yeah. So, so the question's about the, the fact that most scientists believe that the moon was formed when something about the size of Mars hit Earth. Um, and indeed, as, as you describe, uh, both of those, both the proto-Earth and this other body, which is sometimes called, is it Thea, people call it? So it's, it's less threatening if you give it a name. Um, would have had a, the usual mix of rubble and metal and so on. Um, and indeed, all the metal from both planets sank down to form the core of the Earth, and the Moon is relatively light for a body of its size. That's one of the reasons we believe it formed from the debris after a collision. Um, so that does mean that the Earth is uh, more metal-rich. That might be important. Uh, but the suggestion was that maybe that means we get our magnetic field, which protects us from solar radiation. And I don't think that might... I, I'm not convinced that it's quite that logical. We don't really understand magnetic fields. There is, in fact, a joke in astronomy that if you don't understand something you blame magnetic fields and I'm delighted we found a way to explain the lack of aliens uh, through magnetic fields so um, Venus for example doesn't have a strong magnetic field Mercury has a very large metal core but no magnetic field Mars has a weak one and, and things are, are, are complicated and it's not well understood what you need uh, to cause and make it feel the moon does have some sort of mantle and some sort of moving core, although it's iron poor. So I think you're right that whether we can protect ourselves from the solar wind is important, but the details are, are, are still out there. We thought for a while it looked like evidence from Kepler was going to suggest that the sun was quiet, was less variable than stars uh, of its type. But I think that's now being disproved, and the star, sun appears to be a normal star. So it's not that we're in a quiet place in the universe. Um, but no, it's an, an interesting thought. I need to go and find a planetary scientist and, and, and get back to you with a proper answer. Something to add to that, <coughs> as well as having a lot of metal in the moon, it's got the moon that just creates a gravitational tidal force yeah. or liquid. Yeah, perhaps. I, I think the details are not. So, so, but but the lack of, we need to find out whether there are exomoons. I think it, at the minute that's one of the things on my list of why the Earth might be special. Who's next? Yeah. Decades ago, Jim Lovell said if you found an atmosphere out of chemical equilibrium, it would be like that. We found that on Titan, the atmosphere is way out of chemical equilibrium, and we keep seeing odd features on Titan. 
nobody seems brave enough to speculate that there might be like that. Can I pull it up on our penny chemists here? I'm very much not a chemist, but somebody just found some organic biological chemical that turned out to be active in its own melt, as it were. In other words, without water, it was just a hydrocarbon. Sure. So let me take the two questions separately. So the first one was about Titan, which you're absolutely right, we've completely ignored, um, merely for lack of time. Apologies to anyone from Titan who's made the... It's about the same travel time as Botley. Um, so, so, yeah, Titan is this fascinating place. with It's the only moon with a rich atmosphere hydrocarbon rich and it has liquid on its surface. In fact, if you were going to school on Titan, you would learn about the methane cycle, just as we learn about the, the water cycle. And it is a fascinating place. I think um, the, 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 the gentleman asking the question said that Titan's atmosphere is out of equilibrium. That's not something I'd heard, so I'd, I'll have to go and look that up. What I do know is that Titan has a rich chemistry. There are plenty of speculations about it. My favourite of them is uh, a guy called Christopher McKay, who's a scientist at JPL, who talks about Titan as being the perfect edge case. So it's a place where complex chemistry is developed, but perhaps because of the cold temperature and because of the conditions, we don't have bacteria, we don't have, have people. So you can imagine the oceans of Titan as being a place where patterns of chemistry repeat, where you get molecules that create more of the same kind of molecule. Um, and I think it's a challenge to all of us, especially what I said at the start about finding Earth-like life, as to whether we'd call that a living system or not. Uh, so, so I think Titan is a fascinating place. It's clear that we need another mission to go there. Yeah, we, no, no, no. And there are an amazing mission. There's a mission proposed to put a boat on the lakes of Titan, which uh, would just be just such a wonderful thing. Um, it hasn't got funded yet, but but Titan, we, yeah, we need to go back to Titan. We see there's still the Cassini orbiter uh, around Titan, um, which is still showing a seasonal changes, so we can watch grow and and change. Earth began on zone that changes, um, then we see those places on Titan. It's fascinating. It's going to be great in four billion years' time as well. Titan will for a have a much uh, higher input of energy uh, and will be great. It won't last, it will lose its atmosphere. But, but if you're fleeing the boiling earth in a few billion years' time, I'll see you on Titan. The second part of the question was about a chemical that was active amongst uh, using itself as a solvent. Yeah, it didn't need water. Oh, no, no, no. no. And, uh, you know, chemistry, chemistry is fascinating. I was an astrochemist for a while. And it's clear that not all chemical reactions need water. That's not the point that, I, that I'm making. The point is that just water is very good at this property of being a solvent, and it does so with a wider variety of molecules. So I think that's the reason to look for it. Um, I completely take your point that there may be special cases, there may be unusual things, and that if one wanted to take a very broad view of this, you would have to think about all of those possibilities. However, that leads you only at the minute to the position that everywhere might be habit habitable, which is not hugely helpful in, in getting the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, the, the, the habitable zone is really ill-defined. <laughs> it's terrible. So the, the, at the very start, we can do it with, like, let's take an Earth-sized planet um, and then we've got, we know that the pressure of the atmosphere is going to be, and then we can just say, right, at this point, 
the water's going to freeze, um, and then closer in you get to the star oil. But then a, a super earth, pressure, and deeper it can get further out, and if you earth, it, it moves further in, and it's not. The horrible thing about that is um, that can really expand out the habitable zone. And the next thing is that there's also a galactic habitable zone, which really starts to mess everything up. Because then it says no matter how perfect your little solar system is, you could take our solar system and put it somewhere else in the galaxy and it might not work either, just due to proximity of other systems. Um, so you've got that to also throw into the the equation. So the the habitable zone can be hugely wide. Like very very wide as well, um, and I think the the point of extremophiles on Earth is is really interesting because uh, as you say there are these uh, life forms that can survive at those depths and those pressures without natural sunlight, but with the geothermal energy, um, places that you know mammals couldn't live, and in uh, nuclear reactor current water, uh, all these kind of places, acidic lakes that would burn your hand off as soon as you put it in them. Um, there are so many um, edge cases, places you can push life out into that you can actually start to think. Uh, that's another positive is that we can expand the habitable zone out uh, further than just where humans can survive. On the other hand, um, <coughs> I think we have to be careful about looking at where life exists on Earth now. So it's certainly true that life on Earth is gloriously capable of adapting to a huge range of conditions, whether it's acidic or salty or hot or cold or or whatever. But that's not the same as identifying the conditions you need for life to start. Um, And because my guess is that you need a very specific set of conditions for life to start. Uh, and that's what we need to look for. But we don't know what that is, which doesn't really, really help us. Um, the other point about the galactic habitable zone is an interesting one. One of the, the um, things that might put you off living close to the galactic center is the fact that we have a very large black hole there. And that black hole feeds. In fact, it's suspiciously quiet. So there was evidence that for the last 100,000 years, the Milky black hole has been rather quiet. Uh, and if you're very close... In a few thousand light years, certainly in a few thousand light years, maybe even the inner tens of thousands of light years, you get irradiated by cosmic rays, by high energy particles associated with this. Now, that need not bother us out here, except that um, surveys and, th- and theoretical simulations of the motion of stars in our galaxy have recently shown that it's possible for stars, in fact, it's likely that stars move in and out of our galaxy. There's a, there's a solution to the equations that allows stars like the sun to surf along the outer edge of the spiral arm. And it seems that about half of the stars in the solar system have spent significant amounts of time in that galactic um, nuclear reactor, or close enough to be uh, in trouble. So you don't just need to be out here now. You need to have been safe for billions of years. Now, what I just said about the moving speculative, but there's a satellite called Gaia which is mapping the nearest uh, billion stars and measuring their velocity, and it will allow us to test that idea. Uh, but if it's true that stars move around, we, we may have something else to worry about. I'd just like to add something about the habitable zone that might narrow it down again. Um, quite often when sitting in the pub, Chris and I, uh, Chris will get to the truly habitable zone, uh, which is the region uh, star or in our galaxy in which you can the right conditions for the ingredients of a good gin and tonic. So you have to start thinking, you know, there's some places you can live, but is it worth living there? (laughs) Anyone else? Yeah. 
Uh, so questions about whether we're emphasizing intelligent life because we can detect it or whether because unintelligent life would be uh, would be not interesting. I think we can argue about whether we're intelligent. I think we're probably on the cusp. No, I, I mean, a discovery of unintelligent life would be incredible because it would move the equation. It would uh, tell us, if we discovered that um, even simple life was common in the galaxy, then we then know that the problem lies later on. So maybe intelligence is rare or it's the depressing sociological explanation. And we, we may be able to do that. The atmosphere is not in equilibrium is exactly the point. So there are telescopes being built now, um, including projects led by some of our colleagues, which will hopefully allow us to detect the atmospheres of some of these planets. And you can imagine l analyzing the atmosphere of a planet and seeing that it was out of equilibrium or detecting oxygen in significant quantities, something that on Earth only happened with the development uh, of aerobic bacteria billions of years into its evolution and knowing that something odd is going on. Uh, it wouldn't be definitive proof, but if we see that there are lots of exoplanets with lots of atmospheres out of equilibrium, that would be a huge clue that life was common. There's one caveat to that, which is that the, the places where that's going to be easiest to do are the places where the stars are faint. So we're probably going to look mostly at planets around brown dwarfs, the sort of small and slightly weedy end of the stellar spectrum. Um, and we don't yet know whether there are plenty of planets around brown dwarfs for us to be able to, to do this analysis. But we hope there will be. Um, and, and we're 10 years from that, from being able to look seriously for that. So I think it's worth, it's interesting to concentrate on intelligent life because you get to use the word aliens in the title of your talk, uh, but also because it pushes you to think about all the options. Um, and and a, you know, I think from a philosophical point of view, a cosmos where life was common but intelligence was not, I think puts a huge amount of pressure on us. I think of all the things that would change our worldview, and how the human race thought about the uh, the universe, I think that might be it. I feel, I'd, I'd certainly feel a sense of responsibility not to kill ourselves as a species if we knew we were the only ones. Well, yeah, I'd just like to add two things. The first thing, very quickly, is that um, even if we discovered grass on a, a planet or another star, I would die a happy person. Truly, that is the one thing that I want from my life, is to, to see this proof, that we're not alone out there, even if it's us and grass everywhere. Um, but the other thing is this trying to always fight against Chris's pessimism here about the, the brown dwarfs and the red dwarfs and the small stars that we're looking uh, for these um, looking for these small uh, planets and reading their uh, uh, their atmospheres. The cool thing about them is that the smaller your star, the closer in your uh, habitable zone because the cooler the star and the faster the planet going around, so the more data points you can take uh, in a shorter space of time. And they're by far the majority uh, type of star in our galaxy. So most stars are M dwarfs, these small, cool red stars with s smaller habitable zones in theory and faster-moving Earth-like planets. So that's another positive thing to take. Well, uh, that, that, I, that's all we've got time for. We'll hang around if you have other questions. If you are an alien, please come and identify yourselves. We, we promise to keep your secrets, but we've got some questions. Um, please go to planethunters.org and find your own planets um, and help our scientific careers. That would be great. Um, thank you very much, and um, thank you for the organisers for inviting us. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.